Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Roberto Avant-Mir about his book, Rock the Nation, Latino Identities and the Latin Rock Diaspora, published in 2010 on Continuum. Avant-Mir begins with the theoretical idea that all ethnic categories are objectively false. Instead, they are the creations of individuals and groups with varying vested interests in their maintenance or dissolution. One way to track the formation, maintenance, and dissolution of ethnic categories, argues Avant-Mir, is through the histories of popular culture styles, specifically in this case, popular music. In Rock the Nation, Avant-Mir examines the evolving concepts of Latinos and Latino-American ethnic identities through the lenses of various popular music genres, such as the blues, rock, and punk rock, as well as lesser-known Latino genres, such as rock in Espanol, rock in two idioma, and Latino alternativo, for clues they might offer for an understanding of the amorphous Latino ethnic category. His story includes discussions of the influence of Mexican border radio stations on pre-rock genres like the blues, Latino presence in the garage rock of the 1960s, the birth of Mexican rock and the music of La Onda in the 70s and 80s, Latino influence in punk rock, and finally, the modern Latino rock diaspora. In the end, argues Avant-Mir, an examination of Latino rock makes clear the irrelevance of political borders for our understanding of a Latino cultural identity. Roberto Avant-Mir is Assistant Professor of Communication and Media Studies at the University of Texas, El Paso. He lives in El Paso, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Roberto, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music. Hello, Matt. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Uh, thank you for being with us. So why don't we start off, uh, before we get into the book, why don't we start off with a little biography? Could you tell us a little bit about where you where you come from, where you've been, how you got to where you are? Uh, long story, but uh, yeah, born and raised in El Paso, Texas, West Texas, uh, Mexican-American by culture and background. Uh, yeah, essentially born and raised in El Paso, Texas, although I did... Uh, I did travel uh, as a young adult. I joined the Marines as a, as a young 17-year-old, as crazy as that sounds. Happy Veterans Day. Thank you so much. How appropriate, right? <laughs> uh, I appreciate that. Um, so I, I traveled around a lot, uh, both as a, as, a, as a former Marine or as a Marine during the time, but also uh, during college. Uh, I've been everywhere from the University of Hawaii to the University of Texas at El Paso, which is here, my hometown. Uh, I did my Ph.D. at the University of Utah. When I finished the uh, Ph.D. at Utah, I went to Boston. My first professor job was as a professor at Boston College. So most recently, and when I was writing this book, was at Boston College in the past six years. But I just got back to El Paso last year, so I've been back home as as of a year ago. Great. Um, how did you come to write this book? How did I come to write the book? Um I, you know, to be honest with you, I never, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but I never planned <laughs> to write this book. Uh, I, I describe it as, as pretty, pretty organic for me in the sense that uh, what happened was, is I, I began doing research on, on music as a, as a graduate student, having an interest in popular music. And I'm a communication scholar, so 
Uh, I was interested in studying popular music from a communication perspective. Uh, and it began, quite honestly, you know, with uh, graduate student papers that eventually were turned into conference papers. Uh, by the time I was leaving Utah and beginning my first job as a professor at Boston College, it had turned into a publication or two. I think I had an article published as a book chapter and another article published at a journal. Uh, excuse me, in a journal. Uh, so when I had a few articles going on, I had people telling me, hey, you know, you've got a little theme going on. Maybe you should make this a book. And uh, I, I guess I have to admit that I was a bit surprised because I had never really dreamed of publishing a book. So uh, people were telling me you should make this a book. And I, I thought it was a great idea. And, you know, as the story goes, you keep working at something, you keep developing your research. And it obviously did have a theme. And then I began to sort of put it in the form of a book and give it the shape of a book and put it in a book proposal. And then one thing led to another. And, you know, here we are many years later. Exactly. Um, so then we, we can we can get into the book now and we'll, we'll start in the introduction with where you have your broader theoretical argument. Um, in what ways is your story as much about identity politics as it, as it is about music? And I took that as a quote, the identity politics part. Yeah, um, very much so. It's, it's very much about identity politics. And I, and I hope that came across. Um, I think what I what I tried to write at the beginning of the book, which is in my I think it's in my introduction or I can't I think yeah, I think it's in the author's note, actually, the author's note that begins the book right at the very beginning. I basically wrote in the introduction, excuse me, the, the author's note that um, I started off as a graduate student who, who did have a who did have an interest in popular music. Uh, I was interested in, in identity categories, specifically identity categories relating to uh, Latinos, Hispanics in the U.S. I was interested in questions of the meaning of these identity categories and, and who uses them and when and in what context and what do they mean by people, which ones are, are old, which ones are being used now more. I was basically interested in the categories as much as I was in popular music. And, and again, I, I didn't really have any ideas that I would eventually put it all together. Uh, but I, I did I did figure out that, that on the one hand, what I was studying was identity categories and identity labels. And, and as I said in the book, the politics of identity uh, as much as I was studying uh, music. Um, so eventually what comes across is and I, I think I, I tried to qualify this as in the in the author's note is in, in a sense, it can seem like two different books. On the one hand, you have a heavy stream of popular music research going on and a lot of history and some details about particular artists and the times. And on the other hand, I'm uh, having a conversation about identity categories and what they mean and how they've been used and, and how they played a part of music is eventually how I bridge that and put it together. Uh, but I kind of feel like, you know, it sort of feels like it has two different things going on. And to answer your question, uh, how much does identity politics play into it? I think it's a huge, big, huge part of it and, and obviously at least about half the book. So then it is, is popular music and, and rock music specifically just one way of getting at this idea of identity politics? Are there other ways? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I could have written a book uh, on you know various other forms of media and or popular culture. Um, I was doing work on rock music because that happened to be something that I was interested in as a, as a grad student and then moving on into my own studies. Uh, as a professor, but it, it could have been any other genre, right? It could have been television. There are people that study identity uh, and study, you know, telenovelas or you know whatever other forms of media or popular culture. I was trying to do it from from a perspective focusing on rock music, which was, um, as I tried to say in the book, it, it, it may seem antithetical 
uh, that you would search for identity and try to make sense of Latino identity categories in something like rock music. But what I was trying to do specifically was sort of go against the grain in that. I didn't want to search for what I was searching for, trying to understand Latino identity categories through stereotypical genres or things that we more commonly associate with Latinos, like, you know, uh, salsa or regional Mexican music. I was specifically searching for how it gets talked about and and how we characterize it, how we can make sense of it in, in genres that we don't typically associate with Latinos and Hispanics. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, what does the the history or the study of rock teach us about uh, specifically? Well, about assimilation in American culture, and specifically as it relates to uh, Latino assimilation or not? Yeah, um, what does it teach us about assimilation? Uh, you know, on the one hand, let me answer that two ways. The the, the first and most obvious way, and, and I I hope this comes across in the book, is the, the more research I did, the more I figured out that. Uh, Latinos have assimilated very well to American culture, mainstream American culture, and uh, mainstream American music, uh, and so well because it, it has virtually disappeared. Uh, when I was researching, for example, the, the Mexicans' connection to blues in the 1920s and 30s, uh, I, I was really surprised when I was finding all the stuff out, and, and you know, one thing led to another. But uh, but the idea that, that that Latin music and Latin culture and, and, and Latino people have actually been assimilated to uh, American culture so much so that it just disappears. You know, you talk to the average person and they have no idea that there were uh, possible Mexican influences on, on blues artists or Mexican connections to country music of the 60s and 70s, right? Uh, right? Usually only the hardcore country fan will know stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, to speak of Latinos in assimilation, I, I was... I was rather interested in in the irony, right? Uh, for all that we've heard about Latinos and immigration and uh, you know immigration politics and all the stuff that's been happening in the few decades, you know, maybe since the '90s and uh, earlier, since the '80s actually, but especially in the '90s and the 2000s, you know, we hear stories, especially in mainstream media, about how Latinos don't assimilate and. And the problem of assimilation has been used as an argument against Latinos and why we should restrict immigration, for example, for uh, countries like Mexico and stuff like that. Uh, And what I was finding out in my book is more and more examples of how exactly Latinos do assimilate, and they assimilate quite well, (laughs) and and so much more so that the influences have virtually disappeared into our popular culture. And it's only the scholar that goes through and, and, you know, figures out these details and, and, and figures out exactly, you know, uh, how those influences played out, but but to take them back, you know, Latinos have assimilated very well into American culture and really, you know, disappeared in many senses. The other way I could answer that a question about assimilation is that, uh, you know, typically when we think of assimilation, we think of uh, immigrant groups coming to the United States and whether or not they become part of the mainstream or how quickly do they assimilate to the mainstream culture, things like that. Uh, do they learn English? Do they, uh, you know, sort of uh, play down their ethnic culture, their ethnic heritage and become American like the rest of us? Uh, what I was surprised to think about was how much influence goes outward to other countries from America. In other words, uh, how much, uh, how big American rock and roll or things like blues or heavy metal, uh, how how much of a big part they've played in other cultures, even in the 1990s and 80s and uh, 2000s about, you know, there are a lot of kids, and I guess we know this, right? We know that globalization exists. We know that music is one of these things that travels across the globe. Um, but I guess I was just surprised to think about how, uh, you know, when you have, what I was reading, when I was reading literature about popular music and how it's going on in Latin America, you have you, you read stories about how there there's actually a big problem in many of these countries because the older people don't want their kids to be too Americanized. 
Uh, they don't want their kids listening to rock and roll. They'd rather have them listening to some kind of nationalistic mariachi music or whatever folk music from that country because they want them to have their national identity. And for these countries in various places, young people listening to rock music in whatever decade, right? This goes as far back as the 50s and 60s. Uh, when you have young people listening to some form of rock music, that goes against their national narrative and their national identity. And they are really upset about their kids assimilating to American culture and especially American rock and roll. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is it kind of goes both ways, right? You, you can think of assimilation of people coming to America, but it's also about other people's cultures being influenced by a different culture and how they are uh, acquiring new characteristics in their identity and their, their sort of national cultures. So this leads into the last kind of theoretical question, and you write that you're attempting to disrupt facile notions of rock music and popular music history. What do you mean by that? Oh yeah, uh, facile notions. Uh, the facile notion that I that I that I really mean in that sentence is uh, when so much of what I what I learned about rock and roll growing up uh, was that it was the coming together of black music with white music. Uh, the binary, I think, is what I what I think I'm mm -hmm. I, I'm disrupting. Right when you when you read stories about rock and roll, and it talks about you know blues blues and blues and country got together and they had a baby. Right? Isn't that the right? The thing? It is. Blues and country came together and they had a baby and they named it rock and roll. Um, and that's that's not at all inaccurate, but it's just such a limited part of the story. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. When you have a characterization of the history of a music genre as only these two sort of major influences, and they are absolutely major influences. But when it gets only talked about as black music and white music, um, I thought that as as a severe, severe limitation, uh, especially everything that I was reading and everything that I was discovering in my own research, I, I just went back to the question of why do we so much focus on this black music and white music thing when it's, you know, rock and roll and American popular music in general have had so many influences from so many cultures uh, the Latin cult, the Latin music thing is especially huge and really gets downplayed in histories of America. And I'm talking about academic work. I, you know, in the 1990s as a grad student, I was researching popular music, you know, looking in the library, histories of rock and roll, histories of punk rock. And, you know, so many of them, you know, talk about black music and white music and black music and white music. Uh, you can you can get any documentary right about rock and roll or about Elvis or about punk rock. And they love to talk about black and white music. And very rarely and, and absolutely most of the time, they usually don't acknowledge anything other than the black and white story. Uh, so I thought, you know, the black and white story is is fantastic and it's obviously part of our history, but the rest of it needs to be told as well. And and specifically, I'm asking the question of why don't we tell that other story? What's, uh, why is our thinking so limited that we can only talk about the black and white story? Why is that the only story that we're telling about our music and our music history? Which leads us into uh, the more empirical part of your book, I think. In, uh, chapter one, can you please then discuss the role of uh, border radio stations. You heard it on the X. Sure. Uh, heard it on the X, chapter one. Um, essentially, what I discovered was that there was this phenomenon going on in the 1920s and 30s, and they called it border radio, right, which is what I, what I, what I wrote about in the book. Uh, border radio was this funny time in American history. You have radio as the most popular uh, mass medium of the time, right? Everybody's into radio. Everybody's listening to radio programs. Um, people are buying radios to listen to in their living room with their family, right? Uh, radio is all the rage. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there is this sort of transitionary period where uh, to some extent you have original programming, like things like uh, plays and what we now call sort of sitcoms and uh, sort of standard television genres uh, that, are, that are on radio at the time. 
And then also at the time, you have people experimenting with recorded popular music, right? Somebody got the idea to have these discs uh, that are playing music and to have that go out through radio signals. Uh, well, you know, the more I read about border radio in the 1920s and 30s, and it goes into the 40s, I think it all actually goes all the way up into the 60s. Uh, but the heyday was sort of in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, what I found out about those border radio stations was that um, a lot of them that were on the U.S., right, when you had radio, U.S. radio stations did not, mostly did not play popular music. Um, they were afraid of, of genres like country. At that time, country was called hillbilly music, and it didn't have any any sort of stamp of approval. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. It was it was sort of disapproved of in the mainstream. Uh, so you didn't have a lot of country music in the United States at that time. Uh, you don't have a lot of blues music. Uh, blues music at that time is the music of black people. It has names like race music. And it, again, doesn't, it doesn't get a lot of radio airtime. Uh, and you have sometimes other genres of music playing out in, on American radio, but very rarely do you see these sort of uh, uh, more common, uh, popular, popular music genres. What ends up happening is that the border radio stations, which are, you know, you could, you could trace them on a map, and they go from California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, all the way down to where Texas meets the Gulf of Mexico. But you have these, this little dotted line of, of radio stations. What happened was you usually had an American entrepreneur who figured out that he could just cross the border and, and create a radio station on the other side of the border. And in Mexico, they could transmit whatever they want. They had less regulation. They could literally use more power, right? So they're pumping out millions of megawatts of radio power. Um, they also could play whatever they want. Uh, so what I discovered was that you have you know U.S. entrepreneurs going across to Mexico so that they can broadcast country and blues to the United States, right? They're actually going to Mexico so they can broadcast it northward uh, to America. Uh, and this is this is quite significant, right? Because in the 1920s and 30s, you really don't have genres like country and blues being played in mainstream American radio, right? Those radios, the uh, radio stations in the U.S. are really not interested in that kind of music. Uh, so I thought this was significant, and uh, it ends up having an impact, right? Because country music, uh, blues music, uh, genres that eventually will become rock and roll, obviously. Uh, or together will blend and become rock and roll. These become highly influential in the culture, right? And it takes it takes a few decades to get there, and it takes a few decades of those border radio stations uh, blasting signals northward of playing, you know, the common people's music, the folk people's music, uh, music that was sort of unofficial and and you know really uh, disapproved of. Uh, and it happens to a great extent because of the influence of border radio stations. Um, I, I thought that was fantastic when I was reading it, right? Because when you when you hear about the history of American music, you don't often get get that uh, get that story told about how Im how impactful, right? How much influence border radio stations had in influencing eventually American culture. Um, I was fascinated by that story, and I found it only in uh, just a few readings. I found a few articles and maybe one or two books that talked about border radio, and I managed to piece it together as as part of chapter one, as part of my chapter one in, in my book. And it continued. I mean, when I was in high school in the 80s in San Diego, there was a station 91X, which came out of Tijuana. Oh, really? It, it, it broadcast. You could hear it almost all the way up to Los Angeles. I see. I think it still exists, the station. Oh, really? I, I don't yeah. know of that one. Uh, you know, the other famous one, I, I, in the book that I've read, uh, they talk about how border radio pretty much ended in the 1960s. Uh, as far as I know, by the 1960s, it, it started to be regulated where the Mexican government is putting limitations on how many, you know, how many uh, watts they can put out. And uh, I guess America, by that time, by the 1960s, of course, uh, U.S. radio stations have expanded their notion of what is acceptable music to play on the radio. And very obviously, they're playing rock and roll and rock music in the 1960s. Uh, right. So to my knowledge, it sort of ended in the 1960s. But, you know, you have famous people like, you know, Wolfman Jack.
uh-huh. Wolfman Jack, who has been such an iconic figure for for American rock and roll, right? He's been in so many stories about you know the 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 uh, the, the myths of rock and roll, and he's in what American Graffiti, and he's in you know famous character for rock lore. Uh, and he, you know, in the '50s as a DJ, he started on Border Radio, right? He was mm. he was he was one of those uh, those Border Radio blasters, they called him, and that's where he got his start before he becomes a famous DJ in the late '50s and '60s. So tell us about the influence then of Mexicans, Mexican Americans on on American blues music. American blues music, yes. Uh, well, primarily the 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 influence uh, is in the form of the guitar. Uh, be, beyond even talking about music genres or you know, you know any kind of musical notes or anything like that, uh, what I discovered, I, I found some articles that talk about you know where do Americans get the get the guitar from. Uh, so if you're you're in the U.S. and you play music, typically what happens along the East Coast and and pretty much most everywhere in America is you have people that learn how to play instruments and what everybody plays usually is the piano. Uh, people that have musical educations play the piano, and if you're from a wealthy family or let's say middle class family and up, uh, you probably have some other instruments that you've been that you've been trained with. Uh, not a lot of people playing the guitar in the 1700s and 1800s, uh, but what you have is in the Southwest you have a lot of people playing guitar, uh, and in the late 1890s you hear stories about bluesmen, and I in my book I cite uh, uh, Lead Belly, Huddy Ledbetter, uh, and there were several other musicians who were you know coming up in the late 1880s, 1890s. Uh, and they talk about their stories about learning guitar and where they picked up their, you know, whatever their their particular uh, finger picking style or their uh, their unique guitar playing style. And, and there was this influence of uh, connection between blacks and Mexicans, especially in Texas, right? But certainly along uh, the Mississippi Delta, you hear references in books. You hear references to Mexicans. You hear uh, Huddy Ledbetter talking about how he was picking cotton with Mexican vaqueros. Uh, and they talk about how they, uh, they they probably had some influence from the Mexican guitarists. Uh, so we know that the Mexican, excuse me, the, the guitar playing Mexican sort of uh, are, are what brought the the guitar and sort of made it uh, pretty pretty common in the South and Southwest. Not to say that Mexicans invented the guitar, but uh, where it comes to the American South and where it's played by poor and working class people, uh, it's because of their connection and their proximity to Mexicans. Um, so the guitar is, is you know, first and foremost uh, the the thing that we get in 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 popular culture and folk culture that they're that they're borrowing from Mexicans in the South in the 1800s especially. Uh, another instrument that's very similar is the this, the 12 string guitar. Uh, not at all unrelated, but you have the 12 string guitars in Mexico. Uh, there's a little bit of debate about who invented them. I think one scholar that I found says they were invented in Italy and transported to Mexico because of mariachi music. Uh, another scholar says that the 12-string guitar was invented in Mexico. Uh, whether it gets invented here or there is not really the point. The point is the 12-string guitar uh, is a significant part of Mexican music uh, historically. Nowadays, it's it's obviously a part of uh, ranchera music, mariachi music, and uh, other genres like Tejano usually will feature a 12-string. A, a, a they usually call it a, a bajo sexto. Um, anyway, the 12-string guitar was, was directly lifted off of Mexican, you know, uh, Mexican music, uh, rural Mexican music, and it becomes, you know, part of blues. You have several blues artists that that uh, they use the 12-string as their signature instrument. Uh, it becomes a sort of blues instrument, and then it becomes a rock and roll instrument. So you have many bands by the 60s and 70s doing music with the with a 12-string. Um, you know, this is the 12-string. I guess the presence of the 12-string in rock music is not that big of a deal, and maybe not that surprising, and maybe for most people not worth talking about. But what I was surprised to find about in my research was. You know, we got that from Mexico. 
uh, I didn't know this, you know, when I was a kid. And I, like I said, I never heard the story. And this doesn't come out in documentaries or books about the history of rock and roll. Uh, I learned it as, as a student doing research and, you know, doing my PhD and then eventually writing articles about the history of popular music. Uh, you suggest that the uh, the creation of a Chicano identity starts up. And what what's the connection of popular music there? Yeah, uh, they usually pick up the story in the 1960s. Uh, and that that was neither here nor there for me. I, I, I didn't have any feelings either way. But I began to see when I was writing that chapter on Pachucos in the 1940s and, and how many influences of Latin American music became part of rock and roll in the 50s. Um, I began to see those as, you know, connecting to that Chicano, uh, Chicano moment really in the 1960s and what we now basically call the Eastside Sound. Um, in other words, I started to see there were there were predecessors to the to the Chicano thing of the East Side Sound in the 60s. There were people, both Chicano and non-Chicano, that came before, and um, I tried to connect those pachucos to to what later uh, would eventually become uh, uh, that that East Side Sound of the 1960s. Specifically, with regard to that word Chicano, uh, you typically don't hear references to Chicano until about the late 60s, where the where the Chicano movement happens, right? And you have Cesar Chavez, and you have a bunch of people. Um, in places like Los Angeles, right, doing walkouts or blowouts, uh, where you have Chicanos sort of publicly protesting for rights or better conditions or whatever. You don't hear the label Chicano used uh, mostly in the 1960s. In decades prior to that, it was really a negative term. It was a pejorative. Uh, you would have uh, people would call each other Chicano as an insult, and, and parents did not want their kids to identify as a Chicano because it was uh, it was a bit of an insulting term. Uh, what I discovered was in the 1940s, those pachucos, those zoot suiters that I was referring to earlier, uh, they loosely started calling themselves Chicanos in the 1940s. Um, and to my knowledge, that's that's the the first I guess documented. Uh, documented use of the term Chicano that we have sort of a recording of it in the 1940s in, in, a, in a popular song, uh, in several popular songs, but it, it sort of was being used in the 1940s, even though it really has the stamp of an insult and, uh, you know, it's not something that people really want to identify with. By 1960, it becomes mainstream, at least for Mexican-Americans, it becomes a mainstream term, and there's this thing that we now call the Chicano movement. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to Chapter 3, you... you use this phrase, the Latinization of black music. Yes. What is that? Uh, the Latinization of black music is primarily a reference to um, what I discovered was that, uh, you know, genres like jazz music and R&B and blues, which we, you know, very obviously identify with black people, African-Americans in the United States, uh, what I discovered in my music on research, right, I'm going through music history and I'm finding a lot of reference to, references to the influences of Cuban music, for example. Uh, Cuban music and other music from Latin America becomes uh, highly influential in the, jazz, in the jazz scene as early as the 1920s, but really mostly in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make with that phrase, the Latinization of black music, is where you have black music, you know, when we, when we talk about that story of uh, white music and black music coming together, and they had the you know the baby called rock and roll in the 19, 1950s, whatever. Uh, we're still telling that story about you know black music and white music as if they are sort of pure entities. Uh, and what we don't really talk about is what music historians know, musicologists especially have written about this, is that uh, you know black music in the 30s and 40s is getting a whole lot of influence from Latin America, uh, influences that we might call Latin jazz. Uh, it's basically certain styles and sounds and rhythms and, and dance styles and, and dance fads, uh, certain ways of doing percussion, 
uh, certain ways of playing the horns. But you basically have a lot of Latin influence in, in African-American genres. Um, and that story doesn't get told, right? Because when people tell a story, it's like, oh, it's just black music. It's, it's uh, the music of African-Americans. Well, that music was never pure. Uh, and nor was it in the 1930s and 40s. It, it's highly Latinized as compared to what it was in the 20s and 1910s, right? Uh, you have a whole lot of influence coming from Latin America, Cuba specifically. Cuba f- uh, figures very prominently in this in this period of Latinization. Uh, essentially, you have uh, black and uh, excuse me, uh, Cuban and Puerto Rican uh, black musicians who, who are going to places like New York and they're interacting with the jazz scene. And uh, New York jazz artists are influencing the the Latin players, and the Latin players are influencing the uh, the New York uh, musicians. And you have this sort of uh, you know cultural exchange going back and forth for several decades, and it's influencing both types of music. Um, and you know that becomes part of the jazz story, which becomes part of the R and B story, which becomes part of the rock and roll story. Um, and you know things like R and B, you know we think of R and B as uh, even beyond jazz. And I think a lot of people know that such a thing as Latin jazz exists. Uh, but when you talk about R&B music, you know, most people think of it as uh, primarily African-American music or, or black music. Um, and if you go through the history and if you read the stuff that, that I'm referencing in this book, it, it's, it's amazing to think of, you know, they, they have so many influences from Latin America that became part of R&B. And again, uh, in the 1940s, it just disappears. The 1950s, it just appears. Nobody's talking about it. It gets forgotten, I guess. Uh, nobody's talking about it anymore. By the time it gets named rock and roll, nobody's talking about those Latin connections anymore. I don't know if you've read um, the book by Robert Palmer. It's called uh, Rock and Roll and Unruly History. And he makes a direct connection about rock and roll's beat with, with uh, Afro-Cuban uh, rhythms that came beforehand. Uh, right. You know, it's funny. I, I, haven't, I, didn't, I hadn't read that book uh, when I was doing my research. Uh, what I did cite from Robert Palmer is a few articles uh, and there's one or two specific articles where he talks about the influence of Cuban music in the New York jazz scene. Uh, right. So I did pick up on Palmer's research. Uh, right. I, I didn't. I have. I hadn't gotten that book specifically yet. Um, and and this this you know black white purity thing it it, it plays out as well on, on uh, the white the white side as well. And um, I I told you in our emails I, I'd like you to tell the story of Doug Som a little bit a a, a white musician who plays a big part of your story. Yeah, Doug Som. Uh, you know I, I I love the story and, and uh, it, it's a really really interesting uh, part of rock and roll history. Uh, Doug Doug Zom, right? We know him. Uh, if you're a rock and roll fan or, or uh, any kind of historian or if you know anything about the history of rock and roll, you know the name Doug Zom because he became famous in about I think was it 1965. 1965 or 1964, he's with a band called uh, Sir Doug and the Sir Douglas Quintet. Uh, and they were a band out of San Antonio, San Antonio, Texas, and they had a hit with the song called She's About a Mover. Uh, in 1965, the Beatles are all the rage. Uh, there is this thing called the, the British Invasion. So you, you basically what you have is a bunch of bands, even American bands, trying to sound like they're British, right? Trying to sound like an English band. Uh, and that's where they get the name Sir Doug and Sir, you know, the Sir Douglas Quintet. Uh, real interesting guy, though. Doug Zom, obviously, he was not he was not British or English. He's an American from San Antonio. Uh, to my knowledge, he's you know from from a, from an American family of some kind of German descent, I believe. Uh, but what happens with Doug Zom is he grows up in San Antonio and he grows up in a black neighborhood. So he's basically what you would call a white guy growing up in a black neighborhood, and he identifies with the black kids that he grows up with. 
Uh, by the time he goes to high school, he's doing music and he's living in, uh, amongst the Chicanos in San Antonio, the Mexican-Americans. And he identifies also as a Chicano. Right. He identifies as a Mexican-American, even though right, we know he's he's a white guy. Uh, he ends up, I think, as early as the 1950s, before, way before he became famous with the Sir Douglas Quintet. In the 1950s, he's doing music uh, that uh, in, in, I guess, south and central Texas and places like San Antonio and Austin. He's in and out of bands and uh, he's he's experimenting with this R&B thing and rock and roll thing. But he's also doing something that I think we would call maybe nowadays Tex-Mex. Uh, he he likes uh, Tejano music, and he's mixing it with his his bands in, in various forms, uh, very comparable to a, a person that was his friend and uh, and collaborator, which was Freddie Fender. Um, and I think both of them they knew each other, and they they had you know similar friends, and they're traveling in and out of bands and playing in bar bands at the time. Uh, what ends up happening with Doug Zom is he's popular in 1965 with She's About Her Mover. Uh, what I thought was really interesting about that story is, first of all, you have Doug Zom, a white guy who identifies as black and Chicano, and he's got this uh, he's got this sort of uh, you know interesting interesting life story. Uh, he loves Tejano music, and he's mixing Tejano and Tex-Mex music with his rock and roll thing that he's doing. Um, he the band the band I think suffered a little from what I understand. The band suffered a little bit of of uh, they su- they suffered in terms of popularity because um, I think two of their two of their band members were Mexican American. Uh, Doug Zom, if you consider if you count him, he would be the third band, three out of five, right? So you have two out of five or three out of five that are Mexican or Mexican American identified, uh, which is really interesting, right? Because they're trying to pose themselves, they're trying to pass themselves off as a as a British invasion band. Uh, that story is is significant beyond uh, you know if you see if you see stuff like their early album covers. Uh, what they do is they take pictures of themselves and the two Mexican guys are like under a tree in the shade, uh, under a shadow. Um, and, you know, you have all the other band, band members sort of figuring more prominently with light on their face. Um, I, to my knowledge, I don't think anybody's ever written about this. But when I started to read stuff like that, I thought, you know, what's going on in 1965 is nobody really wants to sort of openly come out and say we have two Mexican-American band members. Um, and we, we we can't really, you know. Uh, tell people exactly what's going on with our our ethnic background. So we're going to put these guys in the shade and and sort of take that picture to make it look like we're just a bunch of regular guys, right? Um, and the story of this kind of uh, I, I would I would call these stories of like racial hiding or racial passing, right? Uh, this happens in a whole lot of other bands that happen to be Mexican American in the 1960s. Uh, Question mark and the Mysterians is one right away that I could connect this to. Question mark and the in the Mysterians are a band of five Mexican-Americans from Detroit, Michigan, I believe, or Flint, Michigan, somewhere around there. Their parents had moved up to Michigan to find work in, uh, I believe, the Ford factory and stuff, even though they had had some roots in like agricultural work when they were part of Texas. Anyway, these Mexican-American kids are going up in Michigan. Uh, they're caught up with the rock and roll thing. They want to do a, they want to make a band, and they, they form their band, calling them the Mysterians. And you, you see funny stuff, like the lead singer, uh, he changes his name to a question mark, right? His real name, his real name was uh, Rudy Martinez, uh, but instead of putting Rudy Martinez on liner notes or like an album, uh, the back page, the back cover of an album, uh, they just put question mark, right? So all the band members, they're 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 put as question marks, and they're not their names are not really shown, and of course they're not they're not they're they're known as the Mysterians, right? So what they're doing is they don't want people to see their names, they don't want people to see their background. Rudy Martinez and the Mysterians, they were famous for wearing. St- uh, uh, shade sunglasses on on stage uh and the whole gimmick was about being mysterious and you know sort of 
uh, being weird, not letting people know who they really were. So there was all this mystique about them back in the days. Uh, Lester Bangs wrote about it. Um, but eventually, you know, I started to connect these to the story that I'm telling is that the Hispanic Latino connection in rock and roll has disappeared, has forgotten. Uh, it gets ignored. Uh, and, you know, here's another part of the story where these 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 young men who are rock and rollers in the 1960s, we could have them as part of our rock and roll story, but they're not part of the rock and roll story because they're hiding their identity, so to speak. Uh, mm -hmm. They're they're trying to do this racial passing, right? They're trying to pretend they're just regular old American Joes, and they're not trying to let people know that they're actually Mexican-American kids who are into this rock and roll thing. Um, you know, I was fascinated by those stories. Um, going back to Doug Zom, to answer your question, going back to Doug. So Doug Zom goes through this period of popularity and then unpopularity. He goes to California. He goes back to Texas. I guess uh, his story goes back and forth. By 1971, I believe, he returns to Texas and he's doing, uh, I guess, what we would call Tejano music. And he comes out with an album called The Return of Doug Zaldana. So he's using the name instead of Doug Zom. He's using the name Doug Zaldana. And Rolling Stone, I believe in 1971, named him Chicano of the Year uh, <laughs> because of this album, right? Uh, and Doug Zom, he says interesting stuff. Like he, he, you know, he talks about in his interviews, he talks about how he, how he really identified as a Mexican, as a Mexican American. As a little side note, there is a famous song uh, that was part of the Chicano movement, um, and it's called it's called Chicano, essentially. That's the name of it. Very simply, Chicano, um, and it gets covered by a lot of different bands, and it's known as a sort of an important song for the you know the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, recorded by a couple different people, uh, Chicano band specifically. That song was actually written by Doug Zom, uh, which is which is really fascinating, right? A, a song that becomes part of the Chicano movement and is so strongly identified was written by this white guy from San Antonio who identified as black and Chicano. Uh -huh. uh, chapter four, you, you move specifically down to Mexico. Uh, tell us a little about La Onda and specifically Jose Agustin. Yeah, uh, Mexico, 1960s. Basically, uh, when you get the when I st when I started to get to the rock and roll story, I should say I I, I have to qualify this is that uh, you know rock and roll, as popular as it was in the United States, it has to be said that it was just as popular everywhere else in those early years, especially in the mid to late 1950s. Uh, so I, I, when I, when I start the book off, I guess I'm telling a story in that chapter about how, how rock is growing in Mexico. Uh, and I use Mexico as the example, right? It could have been Argentina. It could have been Spain. My point is that rock and roll has, has become part of, uh, this, you know, everywhere beyond the United States. And it's becoming part of the identity of young people in other countries. And that's the point that I'm trying to make in that chapter, although using Mexico as the example. Um, but you know, rock and roll was, was big in Mexico as early as the late 1950s. Um, and I, you know, I guess this is another thing that when I was doing the research, it, may, it maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, but it surprised me a little bit because I think when we think of rock and roll in other countries like Mexico, or we think of you know this thing called rock and español, um, we tend to think of it as a later phenomenon, right? I think most people think of something that was transported to Mexico uh, in later years, something that that maybe other countries came to recently. Uh, but what I was trying to get at in the chapter is that, the, you know, you have Latin American countries that have their own history with rock and roll. And that history goes as far as back as the, you know, late 1950s, as early as it was for, for rock and roll in, in the U.S. Um, eventually, what you have is this guy named Jose Agustin, who was a journalist. Uh, I believe he's still alive. Uh, but anyway, he was a journalist in Mexico. And he's, uh, to my knowledge, the, the, the most prominent journalist in Mexico that writes about rock and roll. Um, he does everything from... 
uh, writing uh, album reviews that get published in the paper to uh, reviews about concerts and shows that that are you know whatever. Uh, he's also sort of a a, a a a a cultural advocate, right? Advocating the new youth culture and uh, and giving the youth culture some legitimacy in Mexico. Because in Mexico in the 1950s and 60s, as I was telling you earlier, right there, it, it has no stamp of approval. It's it's not permitted. Uh, usually parents don't want their children listening to rock and roll, just like in the U.S. They don't want their kids listening to rock and roll. Um, and in some Latin American countries like Mexico, you have presidents that take an official stance against rock and roll. Right? You have official formal positions against rock and roll. Uh, you have goofy stuff like that going on. And you know, into that, you know, uh, into that sort of cultural context, you have uh, rock and roll is getting bigger and bigger and bigger with young people. And you have a guy like Jose Agustin, who is a journalist. Uh, and is writing editorials about you know youth culture and rock and roll, and um, he becomes an important figure in the history of rock and roll, sort of documenting it, certainly documenting it, uh, but also becoming a sort of advocate for rock and roll in, in Mexico at that time. Um, anyway, so I used the story of of Jose Agustin, this journalist. I used his story to get into the story of rock and roll's growth and proliferation. You know, its growth in Mexico and proliferation throughout Latin America. The idea is that. You know, by the 1960s, rock and roll has its own story in other countries, and it's just as huge uh, in other countries, not just the U.S., where rock and roll is the big thing, right? It's, it's huge in other countries, and they're having their own dialogue with it. Um, they have their own uh, subgenres and their own developments going on, and they have their own issues going on with whether uh, it should be in English or Spanish. Uh, you know, initially, uh, what you have is rock and roll bands uh, that are from other countries like Mexico they they sing in english at first because they are trying to mimic the british and and american rock and roll songs that they that they like so they're very you know they're just mimicking the songs that they hear on the radio or on records and they're singing in english um to put it in spanish right to put their own rock and roll music and change it into the spanish language was essentially forbidden uh nobody wants the rock and roll to begin with but then to do it in spanish which was a you know sort of a a, a double violation uh, and you have these dialogues going back and forth. You know, there there are people that want it to be in English and Spanish, and you have these debates going on with bands and, and through albums, and even scholars and journalists are taking positions about what rock and roll should be and in what language. You know, so you have this, uh, like I said, this development going on. But it signifies and it symbolizes to me the prominence that rock music is having in the youth culture in these decades. Right, it is growing, and it is so significant that people are actually debating, you know, about what language it should be in. Uh, and eventually it gets connected to uh, anti-nationalism, right? You have, like I said, you have presidents taking official positions against rock and roll. Uh, they don't want young people listening to it. They think it's cultural imperialism. It's America taking over their teenagers. Um, and they start to call it things like unpatriotic, whereas if you're a young person in Mexico listening to rock music, you are somehow unpatriotic. Uh, so those kinds of connections to patriotism or anti-patriotism or uh, pro-national or anti-national. Uh, those are some of the things that I was sort of discovering in my research throughout all, uh, throughout all the research in various countries that I was discovering. And that's sort of where I got the title from, the title Rock the Nation, because I was, I was discovering how much rock and roll had to do with nationalism and patriotism, and on the other hand, anti-nationalism and anti-patriotism. Uh, and I thought, you know, the connection between rock music and nationalism was quite significant, more significant than I had ever thought of. And that's why it became a, a major theme in the book. Mm -hmm. um, then you move, as you go into chapter five, you move through rock nacional in Argentina. Uh, can you tell us uh, briefly about that? 
Yeah, uh, two things I wanted to do in that chapter. First of all, like I said, in the previous chapter, I was talking about rock and roll in Mexico. Uh, and my my point there is to talk about, you know, rock and roll is, has, its, has its own story, its own dialogue in other countries, and it's developing in, in weird and interesting ways, but it has its own story with other countries. Um, and I wanted to talk about Argentina because Argentina – uh, if you if you if you read the scholars that have talked about rock music in Latin America, uh, Mexico and Argentina figure very very prominently. Uh, Argentina, with the exception of Mexico, is probably the the only other country that has sort of latched on to rock and roll uh, as much as Mexico has. Argentina, for for whatever reasons, they they in Mexico and, and Spain a little bit, but Argentina and Mexico are the top two countries in Latin America that have really had these long long standing. Uh, very intense and really interesting connections to to rock music in their own countries. Uh, it has taken hold, uh, and it, it's been there for for several decades, as early as the 50s and 60s. Uh, but essentially, you know, I wanted to get beyond Mexico and talk about another Latin American country. Uh, so I'm trying to expand my conversation about rock's development in other places, and I use the Argentina as a as a sort of you know template for the, for that particular chapter. Uh, but in that chapter, also, what I'm getting at is I'm sort of moving chronologically, right? Uh, all the chapters more or less move chronologically. There is some back and forth going on, but they're chronological. So by the time I'm getting to Argentina, I'm talking about the dictatorship in Argentina, uh, how, you know, uh, the dictatorship in Argentina takes an official position against rock and roll. Uh, young people that are walking around Argentina in the in the 1970s that are, you know, identify with rock and roll, uh, they're getting beat up, they're getting harassed, they're getting jailed. Uh, some people in prison, some people disappear, you know, literally disappear and, you know, parents never saw them again. You have all this sort of political stuff going on. And that's the story that I was trying to get at, right, is in Latin America, it has so much of a political political uh, connection, more so than it does in the U.S., right? By the 1970s and 80s, rock and roll is, is hardly political in, in a North American context. But in Latin America, rock and roll continues to be political. And it's very, very intensely political, to the point where you have people murdered and beaten and jailed and all this kind of stuff in in Mexico and Argentina and other places. Uh, and I thought that story was, you know, it it needed to be told. Uh, there's also other stuff going on, right? By the 1970s, we're also talking about punk rock. So to follow the to follow the chronological story of rock and roll, uh, you know, I thought it was important to get to eventually punk rock. And you have interesting things going on, like uh, an Argen, Ar, an argentino like um, uh, Gustavo Santaolalla who is a, a musician and producer, uh, you know, he was part of that time in Argentina during the t dictatorship. He flees to Los Angeles to flee, right, to flee political persecution. He flies to Los Angeles and becomes part of the Los Angeles, I guess, uh, punk and new wave thing in the in the late 70s, early 80s. Eventually what happens with Gustavo Santaolalla is in, by the 1990s, he's a rock and espanol producer. And nowadays, for anybody that knows anything about, you know, rock and espanol since the 90s or or Latin alternative music in the past 10, 15, 20 years, uh, Gustavo Gustavo Santalaya is really uh, uh, figures you know, really prominently as a producer and musician. He's connected to so many bands like, uh, you know, Fabulosos Cadillacs and Café Tacuba, uh, bands that in the 90s, you know, were being hailed as, you know, this this rock and espanol thing. And uh, Gustavo Santalaya is connected to so many people through his production and and through you know being a figure historically in in the in the scene, either officially or unofficially. Um, so anyway, uh, in that chapter, I'm getting to I'm getting to punk rock, and I sort of move the conversation forward into the '70s, '80s, and a little bit into the '90s. Mm -hmm. um, so where do we stand? Uh, you do you have in the interest of time, we'll kind of skip over the the, the punk rock and 
Well, let's not. Tell us a little bit about uh, Latinos and Chicanos in, in American punk rock. Latinos and Chicanos in American punk rock. Um, yeah, the story I wanted to tell in that chapter is that Mexican-Americans and other Latinos uh, actually are part of the punk rock story. Um, and one of the ways that I begin to tell the story of how uh, Latinos and Mexicans are connected to punk rock in ways that we that we never get told, right? When we hear about punk rock music, uh, typical typical narratives will feature, uh, you know, British music and uh, you know New York, uh, Sex Pistols and the Ramones, uh, maybe the Clash or you know whatever Roxy music or you know whatever other uh, other other bands or music that are coming out of London or New York primarily, maybe Detroit. Sometimes people will talk about Detroit, but essentially they talk about you know East Coast U.S. and London. Essentially, that's what they talk about when they talk about the punk rock story. Um, you know, in the 1970s, you had bands in in Los Angeles that have Mexican Americans in them, uh, and they're part of this very first wave. They're not even part of the second wave or new wave or whatever we want to call it. They are part of the first wave of punk rock. Um, I discovered references to. Uh, uh, you know, people like Phil Manzanero, who's actually a British guy. Uh, he's part of that Roxy music thing, but he's he's half Colombian. And in his youth, he spends a lot of time in Latin America and has a fast fascination with Spanish boleros and Cuban music and Mexican music. Uh, and he ends up becoming, you know, famous with uh, with Roxy music. Uh, you have uh, I think I told a story that I read. I, I can't remember the article right off the top of my head. But, you know, there was a there was a designer that was designing the sort of helping design the punk rock look. Uh, I believe he was uh, he, his his background was Nicaraguan, um, and then if you take it back even further, I found a lot of references to this song, a band which I referenced earlier, right? Uh, Ninety six tears uh, by Question Mark and the Mysterians, a number one song in 1966. Well, I found so many references to it. Lester Bangs talked about how that's an important proto punk rock song, um, and there were other bands. I want to say Dave Marsh. Uh, there was a popular you you obviously you might know of this book uh, uh, the book uh, England's Dreaming uh-huh. uh huh sort of punk rock history uh, there's somewhere in that book England's Dreaming where uh, what's the author's name John John something uh, yeah it's not on the top of my head yeah it's not on the top of my head but in England's Dreaming right in the middle of that book he talks about uh, you know how they were listening to songs like uh, 96 Tears uh, and the argument that he's making, and there's, he just talks about it very briefly in that book for maybe a paragraph or two, but he talks about how that song had fuzzy guitars and it had a very particular sound. And uh, What he's getting at is essentially is that punk rock, punk rock develops out of this attempt to uh, take rhythms and, and R&B kind of sounds out of rock and roll music. So where you have music becoming punk rock, it's becoming whiter, as in, as in white people as compared to African-American sounds and culture. Um, and he talks about this particular song, right, uh, 96 Tears, as being one of these early predecessors to what became punk rock, or that punk rock, uh, you know, uh, punk rockers saw this song as a very important song. Uh, and what I was reading at that time was, hey, you know, 96 Tears, this is, you know, uh, Chicanos from Michigan uh, who, are, who are hiding their identity, right? So we don't know that they are mostly that they were a bunch of Mexicans. You know, he was talking about it in the book, England's Dreaming, as, as a sort of wider song, a wider playing style he was referring it to, referring to it. Um, and, you know, I thought that was significant, right, to take it back to even punk rock's origins, right? Punk rock's origins uh, we can talk about as having some Latino, Hispanic, Mexican-American connection uh, as, you know, whatever direct or indirect as that might be. Um, anyway, to speak of punk rock, there were there were various ways that I was discovering that punk rock had some 
Mexican or Latin connections. And I was asking myself the question that I've been asking myself throughout this book is why don't we know these histories, right? Why don't we talk about these? Why why do we not know how much, you know, Latinos and Latino music has actually figured prominently in the history of American music and specifically rock and roll? Uh, these are stories that we don't get told that, that uh, have been forgotten about or ignored. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do in the book is, is bring out these stories and sort of bring back these stories that I think are important. Right. I, I think to finish, uh, we can come back to your theoretical point and it's kind of the, you know, the American history, this idea of assimilation, assimilation is often the goal, but then we don't want, you know, we don't want our, our cultural histories to disappear as others. So do you, do you think in your book, you're, you're, you're pulling out where at one point, um, Latinos are kind of invisible in the history of rock and roll. And that's kind of a good thing as far as assimilation, but you're, you're saying, well, we don't want to forget this history, right? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's a sort of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Uh, if you assimilate so much that your, your culture has disappeared or your culture's influences have disappeared from, from mainstream, you know, uh, uh, perspectives, uh, maybe that is a good thing, right? Because it has, you know, you have assimilated so well, uh, that it's invisible and we don't know about it. Well, on the other hand, it's invisible and we don't know about it. And perhaps the fact that it's invisible and we don't know about it feeds to, you know, feeds into, uh, you know, uh, racist positions or uh, arguments against Latinos or, you know, prejudices or discrimination about how Latinos are taking over or invading the country or something, right? If you don't know those histories or those stories, it is sort of, it's a, can go the other way as well. Uh, and I, I keep going back and forth on that. And I, I don't think I necessarily have to, I, just, I don't think I need to or have to reconcile that. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at in the book is that, you know, it sort of has those two sides. Uh, assimilation can can both be a good thing and, and that disappearance maybe is a good thing. And on the other hand, it's a bad thing because we don't recognize how much has been there and how much there has been in the past. Mm-hmm. So where do we stand in, in 2011 in regards to Latin and Latino rock? Uh, where do we stand? Um, well... Is it is it still is there a genre out there or is, um, is it is well it is a genre nowadays uh, I hear references I get I get a lot of podcasts from uh, uh, from different from different uh, radio shows that are on the internet uh, a common term that I'm hearing is called Latin alternative mm -hmm. uh, you hear alt, uh, to me Latin alternative uh, and usually Latin alternative uh, it sort of has something to do with what we were calling in the 1990s we were calling it rock in español. Uh, so it's Latin music that has sort of a rock sound. It can be alternative music. It can be, you know, it can sound like indie folk or indie pop or like rock or heavy metal, but it's Latin, right? It's either by Latin, Latino bands, or it's in Spanish. Um, I think what I try to write about in the book and my conclusion is you have this funny thing going on where Latin alternative doesn't even just mean rock anymore. That's probably why they're not calling it rock in Espanol, because it's not just rock anymore. Um, Hip hop is figuring prominently and blending with rock sounds. Um, you have people uh, returning to their connection to like the folk musics of whatever country they're from. So they're blending rock with their particular country's folk music with hip hop. Uh, electronica is figuring more prominently all over. Um, you have this sort of blend of different styles. Uh, the language is English and Spanish. Sometimes you hear music that's called Latin alternative. It's code switching, right? It's uh, what we might call Spanglish. Uh, there are bands like the Pinkertones, who I believe. I believe the Pinkertones are out of, I think they're from Spain. Um, they sing in French sometimes, and if you find one or two other songs in their album, they sing in German. Uh, so I, what, I, what I would argue in, in my perspective, Latin alternative music now means any music that's, that's, that's popular with young people 
in Latin America and increasingly with Latinos in the United States. Uh, and it's a mix of genres. It's basically a mishmash of genres and it's a mishmash of languages. Uh, and it historically had some connections to, to rock music, but nowadays it's, it's being blended and mixed with all these other musical styles and genres. Uh, but I find the language thing particularly interesting, right? Uh, not only are the genres mixing, but the languages is mixing as well. And I, I find that fascinating. So then personally, Roberto, uh, what are you up to these days? Do you have any research you're working on? Uh, I do. Thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, you know, the book, the book was the... Uh, was the big thing that uh, you know it came out last year. I was very happy to finally get that work done. I'm now continuing my research in popular music. I have an article uh, that I'm working on, uh, an article on world music specifically, uh, that I've been working on with a co-author, uh, one of my former colleagues at Boston College, and we've been trying to get that published. Uh, it's been in revised and resubmit stage. Um, essentially, I got another article. I'm working on an article on uh, rap music covers, uh, the phenomenon of, of covering rap songs especially when they're done in an acoustic, like, indie rock style. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got an article in the works on, on rap covers. Uh, and I'm working on a proposal for what I hope will be another book, and that is um, that's an edited book, an anthology of popular music uh, from a communication perspective. Um, mm -hmm. There are many popular music sort of anthologies out there, uh, but not a lot that are specific to communication studies, and that's my field. Uh, so I think I'd like to, to get this anthology in the works of, uh, you know, popular music and communication connections. Well, great. Um, thanks for being on our show, Roberto. It's a, it's a fascinating book. And um, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's always an honor when somebody's interested in your research. So thank you very much for your interest and thank you for having me. You've been listening to a conversation with Roberto Avantmir about his book, Rock the Nation, Latino Identities and the Latin Rock Diaspora, published by Continuum in 2010. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.